What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 44 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk and sponsored by Stereo Brand Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined, as ever, by my very good friend, Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Looking forward to today. Mate, it's a Monday evening, sunny outside. I'm sitting in my chair with a cup of tea, and I'm absolutely like beyond excited to chat about what we're going to chat about on this episode. Yeah, it's going to be a good one today, Phil. We're a weekly rock and metal podcast brought to you by Nozokad UK, as I mentioned, sponsored by the wonderful folks at Stereo Brain Records. We're available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Music. Last week's episode, we had the return of the news section, as well as Orbit Culture, which were our first ever breaking band. We took a look into their new record, Nisha. We had album reviews on Year of the Night's Internal Incarceration and Black Crown Initiate's Violent Portraits of a Doomed Escape. As you will have seen by the title of this episode, this week we are dedicating this show to Metallica's Ride the Lightning, presented at number nine on our greatest metal album of all time list. We've also got a review of the new In Hearts White record, Kali Yuga. I think I said that right, Sam. Kali Yuga? That's how it's spelled. It sounds, it sounds about right to me. It sounds about so right to me. So it's spelled. I mean, I could have dicked myself. There's no way of me knowing. I haven't heard anyone else say it out loud apart from me. It's Kali Yuga. Until now, you you've nailed the um the, the 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 pronunciation. You're you're the first. You've stuck your flag in the land. Everyone has to follow your example. If they wanted the otherwise, mate, they should have said in the press notes. That's all I'm saying. They should have said. They should have said in the notes. There should have been a phonetic explanation. It's done to interpretation. I think you've interpreted well. Before we jump in, Sam, because good lord, I mean, I'm kind of concerned about how long we could talk about Ride the Lightning by Metallica. Uh, <laughs> kind of timely. The mm-hmm. recording on a Monday. Because this morning at 9am, Sam, a large portion of the 2021 Download Festival in the UK lineup was released. Always a time where I, I really feel like with Download, even people that aren't really in the alternative music landscape seem to have an opinion on it as well, regardless of whether they're still paying attention to uh, rock and metal music or not. Download seems to bring out opinions and thoughts from every kind of spectrum, really. Yeah, it's always, it's always interesting to see how the lineup is received. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking at this 80 odd band festival, and for me, I'm thinking when a lineup's got Lotus Eater, Higher Power, Bleed from Within, uh, Puppy, Sleep Token, Tiny Moving Parts, Frank Hartnett, Brothers, Saints, and Data, remember, Biffy Clyro, Kajira, Kill Switch, Mastodon, uh, Fuel for a Friend, Creeper, Employed to Serve, Holding Absence, Loathe. Sepultura, fucking Corn, uh, System of a Down, Wage War on. Not got. I can't think I can complain of that dude at all. To be honest, How about yourself. Objectively speaking, it's a really, really well put together um, uh, gig lineup. I think it's uh, it literally caters to every type of metal fan. Um, I don't really think, uh, aside from like any individual taste, there's any real room for criticism. Like if you look at if you look at the the lineup, you split it up into a couple of groups. If you if you go into download for classic bands, you can go for Kiss, Airborne, Deftone, Sepultura, Corn, Wild Hearts, Distillers, System of a Down. If you're into like modern big bands of the last sort of ten years, you've got Biffy, Gajira, Rise Against, Volbeat, Kill Switch, Mastodon, Funeral for a Friend of Bison Men. If you like yourself and myself looking for sort of up and coming new bands to sort of break the mold a little bit sleep token holding absence creeper loathe employed to serve fox jaw even got a bit of a bitcher in dying fetus if you want like really some dark metal you've got random ones like 
Miles Kennedy and stuff. In terms of um, in terms of what download is supposed to do, which is have a wide spectrum of of bands and offer to invite as many people from the alternative music spectrum as possible. I think as far as this goes, in terms of variety, they've absolutely nailed it. It has the most variety I've seen in the download festival for a long time, from headliners downwards. And I think really there's enough in there to pretty much appeal to most metal fans. I think they've done a really good job. I really, really do. Believe it or not, Sam, there was controversy surrounding the download line. No, people Um, were upset, really. People were upset. Now, in, in a sense, I do kind of understand because Saturday, a lot of this download lineup has been cut and paste from the twenty twenty from the twenty nine uh, yeah from what would have been this year's lineup, which, yeah, which obviously yeah. you understand those bands were those bands were booked. So Copping has obviously Copping and Co have gone back and said, "Can you play next year?" Like, yeah, so cool. In that case, we'll just book you. Saturday was meant to be Iron Maiden, subbed by if I remember correctly, Alter Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Now, now the Saturday headline spot at Download is, of course, the one that's most lauded after. Uh, yeah. That with uh, 28, 2019, sorry, being Slipknot's usually Metallica get the Saturday slot. There was a reason why Maiden got the Saturday slot because they're the biggest band, etc. And Maiden had been replaced by Biffy Clyro, which to, to your hardened... I was going when it was Monsters of Rock fan. A lot of those have taken that as as a massive slight. And usually you would expect me to be like, shut the fuck up, what you want about it? It's ridiculous. Um, I'm usually very, very against the 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 pre the the concept of you know we need old bands to be headline as much as possible, etc. They need the biggest slots. But I can kind of understand why you're Iron Maiden fan would be somewhat myth that the Saturday spot would now go to Biffy Clyro. And obviously for yourself, who doesn't like Biffy Clyro, I'm assuming that was a stickler for yourself. Not at all, to be honest with you. Um, because, you know, it, it would it would make any sort of difference if Iron Maiden weren't touring every year. And if you're an Iron Maiden fan that's over the age of 15, you've probably seen them a half a dozen times. Yeah. I've seen it. Th- I've seen it. I've seen it three times, and I've missed the last three tours. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if you want to see Iron Maiden, there's plenty of opportunity, and we're people are complaining. Like, really, if it was between Iron Maiden and Biffy Clyro and Copping had to choose, he'd probably choose Maiden. There's probably a reason why they weren't available. Oh and yeah, they he, they said we can't play 2021. They like announced it. Everyone would know. Well, knew. It, it, well, yeah, exactly. So suck it up. We're in a pandemic, and Biffy Clyro are massive. I don't, I don't like them. Uh, objectively speaking, if if Iron Maiden were playing on one side of the field and Biffy Clyro were playing another, I would go and see Iron Maiden. But that that doesn't mean that I'm like, oh no, we we missed the 17th Iron Maiden set list. I mean, I could write it with my eyes closed at this point. Um, at the very least, Biffy Clyro is a movement towards some semblance of a of a new generation of headliners. And if I remember rightly, Biffy Clyro have headlined Reading and Leeds and done so successfully. Biffy Clyro, one of the UK's biggest rock bands, sadly, and they are <laughs> they are perfectly on track here with with Kiss, who haven't been relevant for twenty five years, and since we've done, haven't released an album in thirteen. Biffy Clyro actually makes the most sense out of a headliner than all three of them. 
if, if you use just recent music and recent um, cultural relevance as the leading factor. Now, you want a legacy band, Kiss are there. You want a metal band, System of a Down are there. But you've already got two out of the three. It's sorry that Iron Maiden can't play this year, but it's a pandemic. They're in the 60s. They've toured every year. They've been at Download every other year. Like, come on now. Like, give Coppin a break here. And he's booked a massive British uh, British rock and metal band that will draw in new different different fans and new fans. And the, the hardened leather jacket patch wearing guys can still see a load of pans on this. Go watch The Darkness and shut the fuck up. Like, I, I've got I've got no sympathy with it. And I, and I again, love Iron Maiden and do not like Biffy Claro. But come on now, this is ridiculous. I think the, one of the reasons why pe- people have complained about it, and when I say people have complained about it, a lot of people will just be the silent majority, Sam, like me and you, that will look at the lineup and either only say something positive, or if there is something negative, only say it to each other and not announce it on the public platform because I think there's no real need to. A lot of people will see this line and be like, perfectly cool, I'm happy to spend money there. But the, the vocal minority, I think their issue is that, well, you tried Biffy Clyro before at Download and everyone went to go and watch Rob Zombie. So why would you do it again now when it was supposed to be Iron Maiden? And by the looks of how the lineup falls on the poster, they're going to crash for Killswitch Engage. Exactly the same thing is going to happen unless you make sure that Killswitch finish before Biffy starts. And like Slipknot last year, basically no other band was on while Slipknot was on. So if you were at Download, you were going to go and watch Slipknot un- unless That's... you absolutely hated them. But in that case... I can't imagine if you're a download, you hate Slipknot. Do you see what I mean? So those people, yeah, that, the people that are complaining, like, why would you do this? You, you you tried this before. Everyone went to go and watch Rob Zombie. And I hate that concept, by the way. The thought of fucking people clamoring for a new download download headliner. And it's Biffy Clara, who in my opinion, who in my opinion are fantastic, are one of the best brands in British rock by a country fucking mile at the moment. And people went to go and watch fucking Rob Zombie. God, that just it fucking infuriates me. But people were people like, why would you try this again and match them with Killswitch? It seems odd that, that people on Twitter seem to think that Killswitch Engage are going to change people's minds to the extent where 60,000 people are going to leave Biffy Clyro. Um, we, we, we went on a Killswitch Engage tour last year and they were playing academies. Uh, yeah. We saw them two years before that and they were supporting Bullet for Valentine. If we're, if we're living in a fantasy world, where there are 75,000 people that will leave the main stage, where Biffy Claro, who are objectively one of the biggest bands in rock music, to go and see Killswitch Engage, who objectively aren't one of the biggest bands in our genre anymore. It, it, just, seems, it just seems absolutely crazy to me that people, the people at Download seem to think that every single person there is a diehard, diehard metalcore fan. Coppin will have definitely considered the pull a range of Biffy Clyro. And I'll be absolutely honest, me and you both know a lot of people that are into rock music and metal music and attend gigs and attend. And I would absolutely suggest that Biffy Clyro are a bigger draw than Killswitch Engage and oh, have yeah. been for yeah. at least a decade. And pretending yeah. and pretending that there's going to be sort of like this Moses parting the Grebo Sea between Killswitch and Biffy Clyro is absolutely astonishing because the same 3,000 people who would see Killswitch Engage in a tent are going to be there and every fucker else is going to be watching Biffy Clyro. That's just what's going to happen because they're the bigger band. This this didn't work whenever it worked a few years ago because guess what? It was a few years ago. They're bigger now. It, it just seems so short-sighted 
absolutely so short-sighted. Um, Merle from um, Metal Hammer, now that today, people seem to consistently get, get mixed up between them liking one band more than the other and them thinking that band is bigger than the yeah, other. And that's that, yeah. exactly what's going on here. Just because you like them more, that doesn't mean they're bigger than them. It just means they're bigger to you. And that's what's going on here. If you will absolutely have no problem with download. The other issue that people seem to have with the Biffy announcement is that people are saying, hang on, you chose Biffy when both Bring Me The Horizon and Foo Fighters were in Europe around this time and didn't have these dates booked. To which That's a fair I, point. To, I mean, it is a fair point on the cusp of it, but to which I say, didn't them Crooked Vultures get booed off the stage in 2011? Why the fuck would Dave Grohl play this festival again? I don't think we'll ever see a Foo Fighters set it down loud. I just, I just don't think they're ever going to play. I think that Reading and Leeds is their home. They'll do Glastow and possibly uh, maybe uh, Isle of Wight Festival or something like that. I don't think we'll ever see them at download. I don't think there's a, there's a need for them on their side, I mean. I, don't, I, think, I think they don't need to play download. And because of, because of the reception that, they, that Dale Grohl received when uh, them Crooked Vultures played, I think it was in 2011 that I've read, He's probably like really sour on the idea now because they got booed off the stage because guess what, Sam? Metal Elitist thought, what the fuck's this? You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. Dave Grohl, like, fuck this festival. Why the fuck would I play here? Like, they booed me off the stage when I was, when I was drumming for them Cookie Vultures. So fuck that. And, and then the other side is Bring Me. And I said to you, Sam, I think they've missed the boat. I, I would be very surprised if... I was surprised last year when it wasn't announced that Bring Me were doing Red and Leeds, I'd be astonished if Bring Me aren't doing Red and Leeds this year. And like you said before a few weeks ago, you made a great point. Michael Evis of Glasgow, his finger's on the pulse, man. He knows what's up and coming. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Bring Me a headline Glasgow. I think, I think the boat has passed for download and Bring Me. I think so. I think so too. I, just on your few fight, Foo Fighters' point, uh, Dave Grohl could announce that the Foo Fighters are playing half a dozen consecutive nights at Wembley tomorrow. They'd be sold out before he reached the end yeah. of this sentence. Yeah, like yeah. it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even be a problem. He needs, he needs download like a hole in the head. It just doesn't. It would make zero uh, positive difference to him whatsoever. And I agree, I agree on your th- thought with Bring Me. I think there was a possibility that if Download would have put Bring Me as a subheadliner in like 2011 that you could have sown the seeds, or 2014 under Sepulternal, you could have sown the seeds for a headliner show down the road. Um, but that relationship does appear to be quite severed. I still think you can be rescued if you offer enough of a slot, enough of a headline, enough, of, enough, yeah. of a, enough money. I don't think there's any... I don't think there's, um, there's any sort of um, loyalties to anything but the dollar when it comes down to this sort of thing. Um, but I, I agree with you in principle that if anyone is going to have Bring Me The Horizon, it makes a ton more sense for it to be read in the leads than it does download. Because as we are discovering annually, the worst thing about the download announcement is the download fans on Twitter. It yeah. really, really is. It really, really is. Because this, objectively speaking, is a brilliant um, <laughs> is a brilliant first announcement. It literally caters to every type of metal fan. It really, 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 really does. And aside from like those one or two people that might be like, you know what, I look at that and there's none of those bands that are like for me. I get it. But for the majority of metal fans, there's at least five or six on there that you'd be excited to go and see. You really, really would. I mean, me and you are 
a, a good example of this because we are, I, I like to think that we are, we've got a really broad spectrum of, of our alternative music. There's like five or six bands per day, Sam, that me and you really like. So, and we, we, we are into pretty, quite a, a large spectrum of music. So we're really good examples for that. Yeah, I think so. I think I think that I think if you looked if you looked hard enough at any any section of the day, there's enough variety to be found to have to have a good time. And 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 like I said, like I said earlier, it dep- whatever you go for here, um, whatever you go for here, it's 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 relatively catered to whether it's modern rock or classic metal or heavy metal. And and this is a, this is only the first element as well. This is going to flock. This is going to increase and. As far as I'm concerned, they have done the best they can in the circumstances that they were pre- presented with. And, I mean, if you made a list of the top 30 metal and rock bands in America and Britain, um, like 12 of them are on this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like I, so I, I, have, I have absolutely no issue with the booking process whatsoever. And I think in the circumstances, he's done a phenomenal job. The only other thing that I can think that people are forgetting to factor in as well is bands could have said no. He could have yeah. gone to bands for this Saturday slot that's become free because of Iron Maiden not being able to play, and they could have said no. Um, do, you know, if I put a gun to your head, Sam, do you think Biffy would have been his first choice? I say he's like Andy Coppin's the only person that makes the decisions, but Andy Coppin is synonymous with the concept of uh, download booker. Uh, there is a team but you always think of Andy Coppin sitting at the head of the table. So, a gun to your head, do you think Biffy would have been his first choice? I don't. No, I don't at all. I think I think he'd have wanted as close to the original lineup from 2020 as possible because that would have been the easiest and smoothest solution. And also, let, let's look at it from an organisational um, standpoint. If you book a band like Kiss and Iron Maiden, you can set your watch by what you're going to get from those guys. Yeah. In terms of the professionalism, the roadie crews mint like that. They've got all their gear. They know exactly what they're doing, exactly how long to play. All the stuff, you know what I mean? They're like a guarantee. You know what I mean? Like it's not a problem. You'll get sixty thousand people. They'll be on time. They'll be brilliant. They won't miss a note. They're not going to fuck it up. They're not going to get. You're not going to get too drunk and have a problem. They're not going to have any travel issues. They're perfect. You know what I mean? It's from Andy Coppin's perspective. Why wouldn't he book Iron Maiden every year? or Metallica every year until those bands tell him no. Like, why wouldn't he? From an organisational standpoint, it is the safest bet. It's absolutely the safest bet. We're asking, we're asking him to be brave with his money and his reputation <laughs> and yeah. not ours. Yeah. Every year we're like, you need to be braver. And he's like, you don't make any money from this. Yeah, and that's yeah. perfectly fair to say. Like, it's like good. It's like the whole gun to your head thing. But if you were betting on any of these bands to pull in the biggest crowd, gun to your head, would it be Biffy? It wouldn't be mine. No. Like, do you know what I mean? You'd put your money on Kiss. You just would, because that's yeah. the safest bet. That's the biggest band. Like, and that's mental, because like you know, Kiss have been around for fucking donkey's years, and you'd think everyone who wants to see Kiss would have probably seen them by now. But no, that's the world we live in, as we've discussed ad nauseum. So yeah, I. I think Gun. I think Gunter said he would have booked Iron Maiden, and will book Iron Maiden every available opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, and I don't blame him. Sam, we're going to move on because right. I, I want to talk about a record that I've been. A lot of these albums that are on uh, this list that we've done, well, you've done. We have played songs at pre-drinks and always nodded each other ahead the greatness, but I don't think I've ever had like a full 
in detail length discussion with you about Rider Lightning by Metallica. So what not are, to the extent that we should have. No, no. Uh, and what an amazing what an amazing chance we have here. Um so here we are, Sam. Uh number nine on the greatest metal album of all time list. Uh, this comes in just after ACDC's Back in Black. Uh, I did send you actually the YouTube link to uh, Iron Man 2, Shoot to Thrill. Uh, can, do, you under- do you understand why I love it so much now? It's a great, it's a great spot. Fucking brilliant. Um, so good. The, the, the riff starting as the plane opens is a, is a terrific cinematic moment, I cannot argue. I just wanted to make sure that for anyone listening that was like, maybe Chris is overselling this, man. Because I was, I was going a bit like it was the second coming of Jesus. I definitely thought you were overselling it at the first bit. You, you, you said this is the greatest moment of metal in pop culture ever, I think was the phrase. Mate, I stand by it. I stand by it. I think it I know is you do. brilliant. We're, we're going we're gonna to write it on your gravestone, I think. And people... People will walk past. (laughs) People will walk past, see the stone, and think, "Fucking hell!" To be fair, this guy had a point. If if they (laughs) if they've seen it, if they haven't seen it, they'll look on YouTube on their phone at the time and be like, "Fuck, this guy had a point, man. This guy was great." (laughs) Moving swiftly on, absolutely, indeed. (laughs) Moving swiftly on, Sam. The sophomore record by Metallica, Royal Lightning. Yeah. Like we did with ACDC, I think uh, back in black, I think it would make more sense if we pretense this is where Metallica were pre-ride the lightning okay okay so, so go on sorry it's interesting i think ride the lightning is one of those really fascinating captures of time for not just alternative music for music in general in terms of where music and specifically metal i suppose where it was going or would would go uh, years past this prior to ride the lightning metallica were seen as this burgeoning underground thrash metal band that you had to yeah. see live. This band is so heavy. It was right in the midst of the tape trading age mm-hmm. uh, in California. Um, obviously, Metallica are, are rising through the ranks along with the likes of you know, Slayer, Anthrax. And I think Kill Em All, when you, when you look back as that as a timepiece of music, is arguably as important as anything else because it was the first, but the leap that would be taken here is somewhat <laughs> astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think Killamore was was the archetypal first album. It was bringing with potential. It was aggressive. It was raw, but it was really unpolished. Um, James Hetfield was very clearly still struggling with his role as a vocalist, uh, still figuring out what to do in that regard. Um, some of the some of the riff work and some of the drums were were not great at times. They were a bit sloppy. It's, it's you know they were essentially like nineteen or twenty years old at that point. You could tell um, it was a band brimming with potential and like you and like you said, uh, and a terrific live band and one that was also dealing with a massive lineup change when they'd kicked out Dave Mustaine about six months before recording Killamore. And Dave Mustaine actually had a writing credit on four Killamore songs in comparison to um, everybody else. He, he pretty actually contributed to more Metallica songs than any other individual member on Killamore. So by replacing him with Kirk Hammett, it was a seismic shift within the band as well. So it was a really, really tricky time um, for them um, in terms of them managing um, their lives and their band moving forward. But I agree with you to think that in 1983 was like when, when Killamore came out by the end of that year, they were already playing songs like fight fire with fire and ride the lightning live 
because they were already written and completed, shows you how quick and incredible the songwriting was that that they managed to progress from one to another so so quickly. Um, in terms of a timestamp, I completely agree. Where 1984 was um, in terms of, of Metallica's sort of rise, it's it's worth mentioning a few things that happened during that during that period of time. There there. All their musical equipment got stolen in January of 1984, about three months before they recorded and released a Ride the Lightning. Um, Dave Mustaine was doing interviews. And this is like, you know how like we talked about, do you think Dave Mustaine's still bothered? Um, this is what Dave Mustaine said in 1984, at the start of 1984, about his own album, Metallica in general. I wonder what Metallica are going to do when they run out of my riffs. <laughs> this new album that I've written is three times faster than Metallica, more advanced and a hell of a lot heavier. I'm guessing he didn't hear the types of Ride the Lightning. And then separately, I've already smashed James Hetfield in the mouth one time and Lars is scared of his own shadow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I would say that Dave Mustaine was, was a very angry man for about 15 years, but that was, that was the context of which um, Metallica was surrounded with. After Ride the Lightning was released, they changed management, which we'll get to later. And really sort of, summarize their visionary position moving forward but yeah in terms of the leap here you listen to kill them all and it sounds like children teenagers recording their first album it's raw it's unpolished but then ride the lightning kicks in um less pretty much a year later and it is the greatest improvement the greatest leap the band have taken in their entire career i think in terms of the songwriting structure and the style now you might say, well, uh, actually, Sam, Justice for All to Black Album was a bigger leap. Yeah, in terms of the sound, I agree. But the quality of the songwriting on the Black Album was also great, and it was great on, on Justice for All. The quality of the songwriting and the structure of the songs themselves as individual tunes here was humongous. The gap between Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning, absolutely massive. And that's what propelled them um, to, obviously, Master Puppets and, and Justice for All later down the line. I think any kind of ill attitude towards... Metallica from this specific timestamp, and actually from from them in their whole career, it's just because they were the they happened to be the bravest guys in the room. In yeah. the sense, in the sense of, I think me and you would both agree that Metallica could have made a career out of just doing a load of Killer Malls and just fluctuating yeah, with, the, with, with the time, doing the yeah. Slayer, doing the Slayer thing where they're a thrash metal band and they never changed, and they built up a real like, allegiance of fans that were really like honoured to be a part of this thrash metal journey with this with this band that they knew would never change and would always be that this patch metal this patch jacket sporting behemoth of heavy fast music but Metallica, Metallica always saw themselves as being something more than that but obviously no one knew that until maybe the first 15 seconds of this album starts. And, <laughs> and I don't want to get into the internet of the record just yet because there's, there's so much backstory to it. There's so much backstory to Ride Lightning, which is fascinating before you even fucking press play on the fucking album. Um, I mean, it, it is worth noting that Metallica, it's weird to think of this now when, when you consider the concept of Metallica, the biggest metal band ever. <laughs> they hadn't actually hit the big financials at this point. You know, no. we're talking about Metallica here, the 19, 20-year-old kids that are sleeping in whatever apartment their friends can hook them up in, sometimes in the studio, mm -hmm. sometimes in whichever basement they can fit in. It, when, you, when you consider that, 
it starts to become quite important what Ride the Lightning did for them. It's an album that would go on to be six times platinum. Obviously, it didn't get that success immediately. But when when we're talking about Metallica in, in the late nineteen eighty three, writing this album, they could that they could possibly go and make a career for themselves being a thrash metal band. But in terms of like the big financials, they they needed Ride the Lightning to be a success, and obviously it would end up being so. How much how much do you think there was a temptation there? for Metallica to just be like, well, we've already got an audience to kill them all. Should we not just do six of them for the rest of our career? I think there would be zero. Do you agree? Yeah, I think I think that there was actually no consideration whatsoever to be the same <laughs> ever yeah. uh, with Metallica. For like six or seven years, they were like, we're going to do exactly what we want. There's an interesting note about this. Um, during the time of the recording, Fleming Remusen said that Metallica were actually less more worried sorry about trapped under ice being disliked by fans than fade to black because they thought that trapped under ice was too poppy whereas they knew that fade to black would be well received because of the song structure now if that doesn't tell you about the foresight and the resilience of that band already at that point fade to black starts with an acoustic guitar james hetfield sings in it and they were like no 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 that'll work trapped under ice though has got a chorus so they don't matter and and that's and that that shows you their their sort of dedication to their craft, and alongside this, Cliff Burton, the role of Cliff oh, Burton on yeah, this album, man, cannot, not just as a performer but as a songwriter, cannot be understated. A man who literally taught James Hetfield how to write guitar harmonies for this album, a man who put together some of these incredible um, melodic passages, the classical passages that Metallica then perfected on Master of Puppets and, and still used on An Justice for All. And then when they ran out of Cliff Burton's magic, they changed their style entirely. Um, because of his role musically and his driving force in the band as a, like, as a writing force, combined with their unflinching approach to their own music, absolutely none. And when they, no, no fear whatsoever in terms of staying the same. And when they signed with Electra a couple of months after this album came out, they said that they had a better deal from like Atlantic who offered more money, but had 10 metal bands. Whereas Electra had three metal bands and they thought to themselves, which is so clever, Lars and James, they thought, well, if we're on Electra, they'll, they'll have more resources for us. They'll give us more attention and they're less likely to fuck with our sound because there's less of us. There's nothing to compare us to yeah. and they're going to let us do what we want. And, and we can, you know what I mean? Rather than take the money now, this is a band that was sleeping above the studio, turning down the money to say, no, 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 we want artistic control. We'd rather be homeless and write the songs we want and know that you're going to support us rather than like sign with Atlantic and get you to try and make us sound like Bon Jovi or Motley Crue or something like that. Do you know what I mean? And that shows how devoted they were to getting better as a band alongside their actual mercurial success in doing so as songwriters. I think, you know, obviously Cliff Burton you, is looked back at as this tremendous, tremendous bass player. But when you look into the finer details of this album and you, you read that Cliff Burton, because he was trained in music theory and composition, mm -hmm. was like, quote unquote, teaching some of, some of the band how to execute his artistic vision for this album. Yeah. Which yeah. is incredible. Like, I can't imagine the concept of someone sitting down with James Hetfield being like, 
so this is how you do this. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. You think about the behemoth that Metallica are now and the, the, the character that James Hetfield has become, like this all-father of metal. And Cliff Burton was like a, a massive part of his like learning process in terms of mm-hmm. the ability to structure songs, etc. Cliff Burton is arguably the most important member of this band. I know that Lars made a lot of the Lars made a lot of the important business decisions for the band, but outside of business, man, Cliff Cliff Burton is really, really instrumental in the success of Metallica. Uh, obviously, until his untimely passing uh, in late nineteen ninety six. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. quickly speaking of writing credits, because you mentioned them as well, just want to quickly mention Kirk Hammett here, because mm-hmm. Dave Mustaine left the band before Kill 'Em All was released, but obviously he wrote a lot of the songs on the album. And actually, uh, I think Cliff Burton has only got a writing credit on uh, a bass solo he does on Anesthesia, I think, on Kill 'Em All. Uh, yeah, and right. Kirk Hammett hasn't got any writing credit on it whatsoever. So we get, no. we get round to Ride the Lightning, and now Kirk Hammett, formerly of Exodus, Pressure's on Kirk Hammett to see what he can do here in terms of writing. Now, obviously, he would absolutely hit the mark. But, mm-hmm. man, do you agree that, like, imagine imagine being... We Obviously, we think about Pressure now in Metallica and we think of them... Then them, You watch the documentary of the Black Album and how horrible they are to Jason Newstead. So you associate mm-hmm. that kind of pressure with them now. But if you go back to 1983, Metallica are trying to write this star-studded record you're the guy that's replaced this, um, this, what was a great guitarist that wrote all the last record. And now it's on you to write a lot of the lead riffs. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's tremendous, um, tremendous deal of pressure. But luckily, if you look at those differences in terms of the writing credits between Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning, it's a much more collaborative effort yeah. throughout the whole album. You know, you've got Cliff Lars and, Cliff Lars and James wrote Fire, Fire with Fire. Uh, the, the entire band in a bit from Dave Mustaine wrote Ride the Lightning. Uh, Burton Ulrich and Hetfield wrote for whom the bell tolls. Burton Hammett and Ulrich and Hetfield wrote um, Fight to Black. Like they all, they, it was all collaborative. And I think, I think we said we said this before. We were talking about peace cells. This is the perfect explanation that um, I don't think uh, Dave Mustaine could have added the lead passages to the same sort of beauty that Kirk Hammett um, would have been able to do here. If you'd have played um, Fight to Black to, to Dave Mustaine, I don't think his solo would have been anywhere near as perfect for the song, uh, not to take anything away as his ability. I just don't think the styles would have meshed as well. And some of the stuff that Kirk Hammett does on this album, I mean, um, I don't know at what point, because the Metallica are notoriously a hard nut to crack in terms of approval. I don't know at what point in the Ride the Lightning process they must have turned around each other, nodded to each other and thought, this is probably going to be our guy moving forward. But I would suggest that it was about three and a half minutes in Ride the Lightning when Kirk Hammett starts doing that tapping yeah. um, over that over that slow riff. Though I thought, you know what, he'll, he'll do. Um, because some some of some of the work he's done here is astonishing. But yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you that the pressure was massive. But luckily, they all appear to be growing together as songwriters. And I actually think the pressure was probably slightly less on Kirk than it was on Jason later, simply because Kirk walked into a point when they were all so young and they're all still figuring things out. Like if James Hetfield's learning music theory and and Lars Ulrich was taking drum lessons from um, Fleming Ramusen and a drum roadie to make sure that he didn't speed up during um, during the recordings and stuff, then that shows you that Kirk walked in at the right time. 
on top of that, Kirk was brilliantly trained. Like yeah. Joe Satriani taught Kirk Hammett how to play guitar at points. Even gave him that famous guitar with the mummy on the front that he always plays for Creeping Death. And that shows you that he, in terms of talent, I mean, they're, they're a perfect match for each other. Recorded, as you mentioned, by Fleming Rasmussen, uh, he, who also recorded Master of Puppets. Um, they chose... The, uh, I find this a real fascinating story. They chose um, Fleming because uh, Lars had enjoyed like his previous work that he'd done on Rainbow's Difficult to Cure. But also, yep. they chose him because recording in Denmark, the dollar exchange rate was really good. <laughs> so, <laughs> recording in Denmark, the... The, the exchange rate was so good that to get a studio of that quality in LA would have been just completely outside the parameters of what the band could afford. Again, Metallica penny pinching. It seems yeah. or, or, like inexplicable to think of that. And you think of Metallica in 2020, but Metallica in 1983, penny pinching, how can we do this for the highest quality at the cheapest price? I think the cost of the re- of the album was like $30,000 or something like that. Uh, I think that equates to something like $77,000 in 2020 money. Um, but just this, <laughs> this idea of, well, he did this really great album for Rainbow and he's cheap as fuck, lads. You know, <laughs> imagine yeah. that conversation. Well, well, well. What what more can you want? And then on top of that, Lars Ulrich gets to go home, which I don't yeah. think any, which I don't think was any small role either. But yeah, hundred percent. I think there's loads of interesting little stories about, it. like even that uh, um, James Hetfield was so self conscious about his own voice that they actually offered the vocalist job to Armored Saint's Jed Bush before they started recording Ride the Lightning, who turned it down because Armored Saint were doing quite well. Um, <laughs> which I'm assuming he looks back on and thinks that maybe that wouldn't have been his best career move in the long term. But the thing, the thing is, though, it worked out for them, obviously, and Fleming Remusen, as well as that, did a brilliant job for this band. Like, if you think that by hiring Fleming Remusen, they essentially got... He taught Lars Ulrich how to, to, to consistently and better play drums. And the gap that Lars Ulrich leaps from, from Kill Em All um, to Ride the Lightning, and then his work on um, Master of Puppets and, and Justice for All, I mean, there is... Absolutely, they're like two. They're like three different drummers every single album, um, and then on top of that, this production work for the price is astonishing. The production that he has done on this album is incredible, considering this is a a sophomore album for an underground thrash record, and he makes this sound huge, considering, and also not harsh or raw. Like it's a soft production. It's really clear and clean and lets all the melodies come out it's such a brilliant brilliant piece of work and such a such a great call from Lars critical reception for this album was absolutely lauded over as you would expect um, yeah. Paul Brannigan and Krang uh, I, I don't think this was his 1983 review I think this is like the remastered review uh, but regardless uh, the sound of four increasingly confident and capable young musicians growing into their own skin it's a fearless, uninhibited declaration of independence from a band who refused to be contained within the faster, louder parameters of their debut, which I think is a, is a really, really mm-hmm. salient point. And then um, another great quote that I, I found while I was doing some research on this 
uh, Sabi Reyes Kulkarni from Pitchfork. Uh, its combination of broader perspective and elevated musicianship arguably mark it as the point where metal as a whole graduates from goofy adolescent expression to an art form that could speak to thinking adults and nourish listeners long after they grew out of its primary demographic age group. In short, Ride the Lightning is the moment where metal developed a worldview. And I think that's a really, really salient point because uh, Ride the Lightning was where Metallica and uh, Hetfield specifically, uh, lyrically, were looking at much broader aspects of life in terms of suicide, in terms of uh, mental health, uh, creeping death. Nuclear war. Nuclear war, uh, creeping death. Uh, is about uh, Jewish slavery, I believe, uh, from mm -hmm. in, e in Egypt. Um, so it, it's this moment where, you know, metal starts really maturing lyrically. Me and you spoke at length about ACDC. Some of the lyrics are a bit like, fucking hell, I, I will let me cut your cake with my knife. You know, it's like, <laughs> fuck, you know, do we have to? Um, yeah. But, and this is the point where I suppose if you stop someone in the street in 1982 and say, what do you think metal sounds like? They're all ghosts and goblins. And then obviously you listen, but then you get to 1984 and obviously metal starts maturing lyrically. I think this album plays a really, really big part in that. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think that's absolutely fair to say. Just to follow on from, from some of quotes that I found, I was reading, rereading John McIver's and just for the, the Metallica book. And he, and he said that most journalists first taste of thrash metal was, was through Ride the Lightning. And it really kicked the door open that would later be followed by sort of these massive bands later on, which Metallica included. So I absolutely think that Ride the Lightning's role in thrash was absolutely huge. Obviously they continually perfected it later on, but Ride the Lightning in 1984, just less than 12 months away from Kill 'Em All, was really the punch that it needed and absolutely agreed with you. The, 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 the shift in terms of the lyrical progression, the shift in terms of the riff work, the shift in terms of the approach and the mentality around this record and the vibe that it gave to the readers. It was, listeners, sorry, it's both, a, it's both a serious record and a heavy record uh, and shows that metal does not have to be, as you say, ghosts and goblins. It can be really about these wider um, wider ideas and on top of that combining that with the heaviness um, like Popov who, who wrote um, The Collector's Guide to Metal um, said that this is the first time since The Sad Wings of Dest uh, Destiny by Judas Priest where the rulebook had been changed the production was amazing, speed superhuman we just played it into the ground and and that was that probably summarises as 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 much as anything the, the fact that it immediately went from an underground album to something that was lauded by pretty much everybody within the heavy metal world and took a massive step forward for the band that they then never looked back from. As we get into how the record actually sounds. Oh yeah, the music. <laughs> the music, yeah, that's important. <laughs> I mentioned that this record was a fascinating capturing time in general, but I actually think the first 20 seconds of fight fire with fire is probably one of the most fascinating captures of time in metal history in terms of it just gives you this taster for what this album and where this band are about to go from the breakneck speed that was kill them all this all mm -hmm. of a sudden there's like this acoustic led opening uh, that was supposedly really pushed for by cliff burton and it explodes into this massive thrash number. But actually, I don't know how you think about this. 
I think Fight Fire with Fire is arguably faster than anything on Kill Em All. Oh yeah, I, I, absolutely. It's it's their it's their fastest song until Dyer's Eve. With yeah, a, without, without a shadow of a doubt. I thought that, but I'm not as well versed in Kill 'Em All as yourself. I've only listened to the record in four a few times, so I just wanted to bounce that off you first. But yeah, fascinating. Yeah, as, yeah aside from like Whiplash and and, and and Mount of Breath, they never really approach the kind of pace that Fight Fight with Fire starts with. And I think that the way that I think it was really geniusly written how this how this acoustic number just implodes into this real like harsh, thick, Britain thrash speed. And I, I did want to mention, and you alluded to this, James hadn't become completely comfortable vocally yet. And mm-hmm. though I do think his vocal performance on this record as a whole is good, I think this is one of the tracks that highlights he still had some way to go. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think where there's points where he's screaming the chorus rather than um, than, than singing or shouting it. But at the same time, he's better in the verses than he, he miles ahead, better in the verses than he was on anything on Killer More. There's an element where he's like sneering and rather than sort of barking or screaming. But there's points when he can't quite hit the note and instead he just sort of shouts it just to completely get himself away from it. So I agree with you really that that and a, a couple of moments on Ride the Lightning um, where he hits those high notes that he, he gets much better at later on in his career. But at this moment, I agree with you. There's, there's, there's clearly a discomfort at times. Lauda did like an anniversary piece on Ride the Lightning on one of its several birthdays. Um, And they spoke to Kirk and Lars about each track specifically. And on Fight Fire with Fire, Kirk said, we weren't trying to provoke anybody with that intro. It was a natural thing. I didn't see any limitations to what we wanted to do. The possibilities were sky high. And you have to understand, we were creating our own playing field here. We were going to places that no one else had gone before, and we were happy going there. It made sense to try new weird things. Why not? Now, that sounds like a normal standard thing that someone would say. In 2020, loads of bands have experimented. In 1984, that was not not the norm. You you found your blueprint. You found your blueprint. You executed it until the end of your career. Unless you you fucking rush. Unless you rush. Who fucking would? Who had seventy blueprints in between seventies and eighties? You found your blueprint, you executed it, and you fucking ran that horse into the ground for as long as you possibly could. You didn't do this. This wasn't these kind of left turns. Just weren't the norm then, from my understanding. Obviously, you've got a much stronger understanding of seventies, eighties metal than myself. So you'll be able to either agree or disagree with that point. But my understanding is that chances weren't taken in the 80s. You, you find your blueprint, you fucking run it into the ground. Yeah, unless you were huge, unless you were really, really massive, like Van Halen experimented with synths in the 80s. Um, this the same year 1984 came out was Van Halen's 1984 uh, with um, Jump on it and stuff like that. But they were huge. They could do what they wanted. Like, they really could have done what they wanted. Um, but the, 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 the advantage that Metallica had, and it's actually a disadvantage to, um, to our musicians today, is that Kirk Hammett is right. There was no blueprint yet. There was no, there was no one at the back saying, I, you, you can't have that if you want a great thrash album. No one at the fuck a great thrash album was yet. They were writing the first great thrash album. It was happening in the moment. Um, whereas now, you look at, when we talk about thrash, it's been running to the ground. Metallica did all the good ideas within like four years. 
Um, and that's what, that's what happened. Um, so them experimenting with tempo, them experimenting with acoustic guitars and clean guitars and slow solos and, and, and all the different stuff they did, instrumentals and things, were stunning at the time. But it was their ability to put them together and push them forward to the record label. It was helpful because the record label had just jumped on thrash metal and metal overall. And they were just hoping that lightning in the bottle would strike. So it really did assist Metallica that there was no comparison. You know, there was no Led Zeppelin thrash uh, album. They were like, why don't you just sound like that? We need to want that. And that, that, that meant that the record label had nothing to say, which meant that Metallica could just do exactly what they wanted, which is obviously to everybody's benefit. So I agree with you that, that if, you'd have, if Metallica would have come around in 1988, we'd have already had five years of Slayer and Anthrax, then maybe the record label would have been like, hold on a minute, acoustics, are you sure? Um, we've had loads of success not doing that but in 1984 no one knew knew what would work yet so Metallica were just like you said earlier the bravest in the room the boldest in the room and the most resilient but that being said if you'd have told Metallica not to do that they'd have done it anyway they'd have released the stuff on their own somehow Um, but yeah I completely completely agree they were setting the blueprint this is the blueprint this is still one of the thrash albums that you look back on and say this is what thrash metal sounded like they were creating this in the moment before we continue running through track list and thoughts, you mentioned uh, to me that you wanted to do a five favorite riff section. We can either do yes, that please. now. We can do that now or at the very end. Um, I, I, I'm I'm easy. I I would like I just like to see because as we were talking about the progression between James in Kill 'Em All and James in Ride the Lightning. Is the first? This is the first album really where we get the James Hetfield riff. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like uh, yes. that 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 way steps into those boots. And says, oh my god, this is the greatest riff writer in the history of metal. Like this six-year run that James Hetfield starts here and gets up to like 1990 is just extraordinary. So I wanted to just see um, what your favorite, what your five favorite riffs were. Okay. So um, I've got them. I've got them in order, so we can so do it from right. five to one if you want. Yeah, I've got mine in order. As right. well. I haven't All given right. like I haven't given like a paragraph in, on each for one. No, no, I've, no, I've no, no, no. I've just I've just got the number and right, the riff, okay. and I'll we'll, we'll just jam on it if if needs be. Okay. At fifth, at fifth, I've got the the first main riff of Fight Fire with Fire. Right. Okay. Yeah. The riff that sits underneath Hammett's solo on Ride the Lightning. Perfect, because I've got that at four. Ah, right, okay. <laughs> that's perfect. What have you got at four? Uh, mate, the chorus riff on Escape. I know that's going to... No! Be like <laughs> mate, I love that chorus riff on Escape. I think it's fucking wicked. I, I chose I chose riffs that I think service the song. I fears my own. Be your own way. That one. Bloody mate, I, I think the riff underneath... I, I fucking love the riff underneath that. Imagine telling James Hetfield, who hates that song because the record label insisted that they put it out, that your third favourite riff on this album is that one. I would oh, just love fucking, to that sorry. Um, I said a scat. Trapped under ice, I meant. Sorry, trapped under ice. Oh, okay. Sorry, okay, I've under- fucking I said, a, I said a scat because a scat is on my next point after I've my notes here. Sorry. Yeah, no uh, worries, man. Tra- the chorus riff on Trapped Under Ice. I said a scat, sorry. Yeah, don't worry about it. That's a great riff as well. I'll give you, I'll give you Trapped Under Ice. Um, the third one for me... Is the main chorus riff on For Whom the Bell Tolls? That's third for me. I went for Hetfield's Pace Change on Fight to Black. Nice, nice. Um, I 
I went for that one as well off a second. You know, the bridge one. The dun out, ban out. That's yeah, dun out, now. That one. Yeah, so that's that. That's the one I meant on the pace change. Dun, dun, perfect. Dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. That's that's my favourite riff of all time, but I've 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 got another one for number one for the for what I think is the most complete on the album. What have you uh, got? Is it two now for you? This is two now for me. Uh Hetfield on the intro to Bay to Black. So oh, that, um, that melodic guitar. Yeah. Fucking out amazing. So it's gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. And uh, number one is the main riff for Creeping Death. Right. Yeah. What have you got number one? Uh, mate, I, I'm pretty sure you would you would know because the amount of times I mentioned this year, mate, ham it on the intro for whom the bell tells. Fucking I things I love in this world, I'm telling you that riff is in the top ten in like things that I love. <laughs> so like my, my my family members take up six of them. You know what I mean? If I, in my top ten. Do, do you prefer this to the moment that Iron Man gets out of the plane to shoot to thrill? Yes, but this isn't pop culture. <laughs> so you can't put this on my gravestone. Um, <laughs> mate, I, uh, I absolutely adore that riff. I, I, if someone put that riff on like a three-hour YouTube loop, I'd just fucking listen to all three hours of it. it yeah, it is yeah I, I adore it. So fucking great. It's just fucking brilliant. Oh, it's, it, it's one of those riffs you can just sing forever, man. So great. Completely agreed, and 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 the the greater point to this, obviously, that aside from us just shouting about riffs to each other, is that I don't think you could have done that with Kill 'Em All, and I think on Master of Puppets you could do this. You could do a top ten on Master of Puppets, yeah. and I think you could do the same on on Injustice for All, and I think it symbolises the growth that they took from one album to another. But also, it points out how similar our lists were, which I thought they would be. Yeah, it points out that there are some. And we'll obviously get to them individually, track by track. We just do fight, fire with fire. But there are some iconic Metallica riffs. Of if you compile the twenty greatest Metallica riffs, these there are four at least five. Yeah. Um. On 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 this list off this album. Um. Like we talked about, fight fire with fire. Another another shift that they went to here is is on ride the lightning. And you talked about the the tempo change that you that you put on your list is on is on mine as well. Um. That is another example of bravery from Metallica right there. Their ability to actually shift away from thrash. That is a mid-tempo song, um, a song about panic and tension that they then accompany this remarkable bridge in the middle of where it's that simple um, three-chord riff that James Hetfield does. And over the top of it, Kirk Hammett's solo is astonishing. Oh, oh, oh. The tapping over the top of that is extraordinary and then from there they go into the thrash sequence at the end it the, the tempo shifts on 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 the title track ride the lightning here it's just astonishing absolutely astonishing another symbol another symbol of their ability to change change themselves and change the patterns of their songs and and really experiment just every song was another example of their ability to experiment and move forward my understanding sam is that dave mustaine gets two writing credits on this album and one of them is ride the lightning Yes, yes, that's correct. So I, I would assume then that Mustang had already written all the lead passages for Ride the Lightning. So when we say Hammett's riffs on it, oh, that's interesting. I think Hammett's performance you... of his would it not be if it's his? Yeah, that's, that's that's very fair. That's very fair. Though I would say, and this is just a speculation, that if you listen to Megadeth and listen to Ride the Lightning, you'd say that Dave Mustang wrote the intro riff. 
that's really that's really Mustaine. And then Hammett's just soloing over the 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 the, the, the mid tempo riff. So I'm gonna say for my love of Kirk Hammett, that's all him. But I think that Dave Mustaine wrote that intro riff. I would, then, I would assume so, yeah. I think Dave Mustaine probably wrote the first half of Ride the Lightning. And then Cliff Burton, James Setfield and Kirk Hammett took the took the real took the wheels with the rest of it. Although obviously I don't know. If you, well, if you listen to the first half of Ride the Lightning, it, it does sound a bit mega deathy. Well, I, I, I can't remember now, but I, I don't think Hammett is listed on the writing credits for that song. So not at all. That's I, interesting. Well, uh, now that you've said that, I'm, no, I'm, right. wonder, not, I'm wondering now. Um, not, you're right. So, okay, so which has made me think that it was of all those lead passages um, at Dave Mustaine's and it's Hammett's performance of them. However, I actually adore Kirk Hammett and I think he's massively underrated. Uh, even Agreed. though he, even though he's lauded in some areas, there are some people that, for some reason, don't see him as one of the great guitarists of our time. And I, I, I fucking think he's fantastic, amazing. Um, but yet, for for right, like, I did want to point that out. Call of Cthulhu and the title track on this record, yep. Dave Mustaine yep, credits, uh, which I actually think is more interesting in the sense of obviously. Mustaine was writing this in early 83, 82. Metallica had to sit on these riffs and like really build a concept around them, which actually is more impressive somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It shows that also shows how prolific they had been from like 1982 to like 1985. They wrote three albums worth of material. Like it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary level of, 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 of writing. And Dave Mustaine did all this and then, just wrote like album after album after album for Megadeth for like a decade. Like these guys, like you talk about, you talk about like how drunk and stuff they got and how mental the touring were. They literally never stopped working ever. They toured and then went home and wrote songs and then they toured them. And like, that was it. That was that for like an entire, entire decade. The, the, one of the reasons that they've become so successful is not just that their songs are brilliant. It's the fact that they are so hardworking and dedicated and for both of them, both Megadeth and Metallica, there's a work ethic in both of those bands that has permeated through their entire careers. This is what blew my mind more than anything about this record, Sam. For Whom the Bell Tolls is the first track that Metallica ever played to a click track. <laughs> that absolutely blew my mind. That's I, a brilliant idea. I didn't know that. Believe that. Yeah, Fleming Rasmussen is interviewed on YouTube. Uh, and he said he said that he insisted that they play for whom the bell tolls to a click track because he wanted everything to be literally as tight as a nut, which, mm. funnily enough, that fucking worked quite it well, is. didn't it? Um, it is, mate. What I cannot believe that I, I cannot believe that until that point they weren't playing songs to a click track. I cannot believe but the talent in this band. <laughs> it's it was also really common at the time for bands to just record stuff all together at once. So, you know those those clips you see of guys in studios where it's the singular player right. and all the band are just like watching him and like he just plays his bit to the click track. It, for a lot of young bands, you couldn't afford to multi-track. And by that, I mean that you like James would sit down and put the rhythm on and then he'd fuck off. And then Lars would sit down and put, put the drums on and he'd leave and then Cliff Burton had the bass. So they'd all do it bit by bit, right? But if young bands with no money didn't have the time all the money to pay for the amount of hours you would need to do that. So a lot of the time, the sound engineer, and, and I've been in bands that have done this, the sound engineer will just put two mics around everybody and say, I'll just play your songs. 
and I'll just master them. And that's probably what happened on Kill em All, um, apart from like bass solo, take one that Cliff Burton does on his own. A lot of these songs were probably recorded together, which meant that you don't need a click track because it's almost a live recording. Do you know what I mean? And then it's just being polished and stuff. Whereas, obviously, Ride the Lightning was Metallica's first experience with a professional studio at all. I mean, this guy did Rainbow. You know what I mean? So that this is this is a, a massive, massive opportunity. So it was probably fair to say they'd never had a click track in their lives right. up until that point. Um, Lars Ulrich was being taught how to play drums <laughs> in <laughs> 1984 by the drum roadie because they were kids. They were just kids. So it doesn't surprise me that this is the first time that they'd come into contact with it. And as well, the way that they, you can see the way they play with each other, like Lars has his own relationship with timing and his own relationship with, with James Hetfield. And that's always been the basis of their stuff rather than actually like doing it like by the book. But it absolutely needed to happen on For Whom the Bell Tolls, which again, this is a heavy metal song. It's not a thrash song. And this is, I think, um, James Hetfield's greatest vocal melody ever. The, the, work on, the work on For Whom the Bell Tolls. The lyrics and the melody here have never been better. Than, and and, and they, they've turned this into such a brilliant live staple oh, to the yeah. point where the, the live versions of this are, I think, better than the studio because his voice now suits the high notes so much more. But the way, the, the, the lyrics in For Whom the Bell Tolls, I've always appreciated how, and it's the same really strange about how musical it sounds, but it's almost hypnotic. Like the way that it's sort of it's perfectly matched to the to the simple riffs as well, and it lets that melody just just breathe on its own. Like the whole song is about that hypnotic, simple melody, and it's just perfect. It's just perfect. Some some of the most iconic moments in Metallica's history for whom the bell tolls, like you know, look to the sky just before you die, and all that sort of stuff. It's just sensational. And the band do a brilliant job on this. This is brilliantly put together. And it is one of their most replayable songs. This is the song I'd play if I ever wanted to show somebody how Ride the Lightning sounded. This is the song that you talk about, I think, off this album for the, like the average layman. I think that the, the, for whom the bell tolls kicked open so many doors for them, especially live. It's such a brilliant live band. It's such a brilliant live song. I think it's the first song they ever wrote that would go down your heavy metal folklore there would be two more on this album that would also do that. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I love Seek and Destroy. I love Four Horsemen. But I feel like this is the first on the route where if, you, if you're curating a list of the XYZ best 20 heavy metal songs ever, you, one of the first ones you'd go to is, oh, of course, Who in the Bell Tolls. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's, it's the first time they've mastered that. Yeah, it's fucking... This, just to echo your sentiment... There's nothing like seeing this live. That's there's, some, there's something really special about when Hetfield gets to the uh, gets to the point where it's take a look to Sky just before you die. It's the last time you will, and then Lars comes back in with the drums. It's pretty fucking special. Uh, you, yeah, if you really if you ever got to see that live, you, you're a, you're a special you're a lucky person. Uh, it's somewhere else, man. After that, Sam. It would be what I, what I think is the greatest Metallica song of all time. Um, Certainly, my favourite ever. I, I think, obviously, I think even object like it's one of those things where it's my personal favourite. But I think even objectively, there's a really strong shape for it. Even if 
like yeah even if I'm saying I'm fade to black and the other person across the room is like, no, I'm master of puppets. There could be like that mediator in the middle that could pick both apart and be like, mm, to be fair, there is a shape of fade to black because it, it's so, so brilliant. Absolutely. Metallica actually did a um, top song of all time bracket like about a month ago during the, ah. during the, the harsher points of the lockdown. And the, it, the fade to black came third behind oh. one and master of puppets. Right. Okay. So, so like I, I've got no argument with that um, yeah. in terms of like in terms of how just incredible it is and and how multi layered it is and if there are any two songs you would say that were greater in some objective way probably one and Master of Puppets are, are probably the the ones that, that push a little bit further but in terms of the songwriting here um, you talk about timestamp um, this is the first song where the Metallica ballad blueprint happened. Um, they would copy this with Welcome Man Sanitarium and one, and the day that never comes, this clean guitar opening, lead guitar intro, um, heavy heavy chorus, quiet verses, heavy uh, lead guitar wailing uh, to the end. Um, that that blueprint they repeated a few times to great success, obviously, and a couple of my favourite ever Metallica songs follow that um, follow that pattern. Yeah, but this is the best, I think. Um, because not only is it the bravest at the consider the point that they've ever done, it's just perfect. Um, the opening riff to this will always bring me goosebumps. The the melodic B minor yeah. chord that he does with with Kirk Hammett coming over the top, the way that it transcends and it transitions into this acoustic um, minor chord sequence with with James singing over the top um, is wonderful on its own. That's the thing. Fight to Black would be a good song if they didn't have this whole second half of it. Um, that's how good it is. Um, but then the second half kicks in and I I can't I can't even express how much I love that moment where it, it fades out into this brilliant, brilliant, brilliant riff that combines the power chords and the power of Metallica's sound with this intricate this sort of galloping riff that then brings it all back and then they go into this secondary sequence where they have a lead passage and it's again, double harmony lead in a thrash song with, uh, with Lars Ulrich doing the double kick pedals underneath. That's modern metal right there. That's what that is. Trivium just did that five, like four months ago <laughs> on their new album. They write songs like Metallica were writing songs 25 years ago, 35 years ago. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. And then that solo at the end, it's just marvelous. they this song, as, as a piece of music, is just absolutely gorgeous. And if you look on the internet, of, and you type in Fade to Black cover, the amount of covers that are by like classical acoustic guitarists, pianists, jazz musicians, orchestras, show the depth of Fade to Black. The way that it's so, so beautiful that it can be restructured and reimagined by classical musicians is also a nod, again, to, to Cliff Burton and his impact here. Um, and you listen to songs like this, and it, that's what makes me, and we'll obviously talk about that in, 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 in on, on Master Puppets when that arrives and, and, other, and other albums as well. But that's what makes me so sad when I listen to, to this album and, and the one that followed it, is that we might have had another two or three albums of this beauty, yeah. Um, yeah. thanks to sort of Cliff Burton and stuff like that, because they really didn't write songs like this ever again after he died at all. No. Uh, they never really got anywhere near songs like this. And, and Justice Falls great, 
but it doesn't have this level of dexterity and beauty and depth the way that the mix of Burt and Hetfield and Hammett brought together as the two guitarists and bassists. It's just beautiful. It really is beautiful. And, and as well, another another song that he's become a live staple of Metallica and has survived the ages, and it's just superb um, every time they play it. The Die That Never Comes and Bleeding Me, give it a go, didn't I? But, and I do really love both those songs, but never anywhere near this. No, I agree. Same with Welcome Home Sanitarium, which yeah. is brilliant, but I prefer this I prefer this by about 10%, I would say. But yeah, as with most things, the original is often the best. And I think that's the case with uh, with Fighter Black, which I think is, again, objectively, I'm going to say that in the most subjective person in the world when it comes to Metallica, but I think objectively, this is one of their great, Fighter Black is one of their greatest ever songs. And a signal, again, in the middle of a thrash album with a lightning bolt on the front cover, that they would stick this forth. It's just incredible. Incredible bravery and musicianship. One of the most interesting parts of this conversation I've been thinking about is what I'm about to mention now. Me and you have never broke this album apart together piece by piece, but I do remember before when me and you were talking, as we have several times, we've had a drink or just a normal conversation, really. Metallica usually come up in <laughs> regardless of what we're doing. Yeah, Metallica can 100%. come up. 100%. Yeah. Um, we were talking before about you know, the greatest Metallica album, etc. And you, I remember vividly you saying to me, if, you know, we were talking about, is there an argument for Ride the Lightning? And you were like, yeah, kind of, but dude, there's a reason why no one's clamoring for Metallica to play Trap from the Rise or Escape Live. Yes. And I thought about that when I was, when I listened to this, obviously I've listened to this album in full several times, but when I was listening to it in full this time, knowing we were going to do this, I, I really paid attention to those two songs and mm -hmm. this isn't too much of a knock to them but I feel like now the level of detail I've listened to them and thinking about what you said I do wholly understand your point of we can't consider this to be Metallica's best album because Trapped Under Ice and Escape are on it and that it's not like they're like calamities of songs but no. when you come off the back of two of the greatest heavy metal songs ever written, they are quite a halt to the momentum, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I was I was mentally doing this because I often have this argument with myself to make sure that I'm, 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 my opinions are like confirmed to me, like I understand what I'm trying to say. And like if you compare this to, to Master of Puppets um, and you go Fight Fire with Fire or Battery and you say, all right, you prefer Battery, and you go Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets. You say, all right, I prefer Master of Puppets. So it's 2 0 to Master of Puppets, right? But then you go, Do I prefer For Who in the Bell Tolls? I think it should not be. You prefer For Who in the Bell Tolls. It's a better song. And then you prefer Fight to Black or Welcome Out Sanitarium. You prefer Fight to Black. So it's 2 2 after 4, right? And then it gets to, to Trapped Under Eyes and Escape. And then Master of Puppets just takes a, a, a 6 4 lead. And then and there's no looking back. And that's that's the difference. It's the it's head it's head to head between Master of Puppets and and Ride the Lightning for the first four songs, which is how great this album is. But then, would you have Trapped Under Ice or Disposable Heroes? Well, I think I'd have Disposable Heroes. <laughs> yeah. Would you have Escape or Leopard Messiah? I think I'd have Leopard Messiah. Creeping Death would beat out um, Orion probably, and then it's a toss up whether you prefer Damage Incorporated or Call of Cthulhu. But really, that, that two bit in the middle is the thing that lets them down between this album and, and Master of Puppets. And again, like you say, 
you could probably put this on like Anthrax album. Sorry, Anthrax. And it would be like, oh, that, that, that's pretty energetic. That's just one of the better songs on the album. But wet, like you said, when this is surrounded by For Who in the Bell Tolls, Fight to Black, and Escape is immediately followed by Creeping Death, there is a very noticeable lull. And it's also important to the band. I've probably considered that when they pack the album, they've bookended it with the best songs. Or like it packs, starts amazing and it ends amazing. And that bit in the middle is just like, uh, yeah, you can skip past this spot. Just get to Creeping Death because that's a single. And it, it's like the band knew that as well. And they were worried about Trapped Under Ice. And they were they re, they refused to play Escape uh, until 2012 because James Hetfield didn't like it. Um, so that, that tells you everything. That No one knows Metallica better than Metallica. So I think that points it out. And yeah, that's the difference, I think, between this and any other album. And you could probably do this with uh, And Justice For All as well, in my opinion. Hey, I do love that chorus riff on Trapped Under Ice, that. It's not a bad song. Oh, yeah, not Trapped a bad Under song Ice, at all. It's a good thrash tune. It would be, it'd be, it'd, it'd really suit if it was on, like, Kill Em All. Yeah. Like, like it would just suit that sort of high pitch. Like, and there's also some nice, um, some nice um, guitar harmony work. It's just, it's... <sighs> It's just not one of the greatest thrash songs of all time, <laughs> and yeah. that's what the first—that's what the first four songs were, and that's what two of the next four were. And it, you know what I mean? It's—it's not—it's not—it's not a bad thing. It's just they hadn't perfected their craft in the way that they did, perhaps a year and a bit later. That's all. I think Escape is yet another capturing time moment on this record because it's probably one of the only times of Metallica's history where they were writing to almost please somebody else. Uh, read interviews yeah. and stuff like that. And it, it, it has become very apparent that Metallica were chasing somewhat of a quote-unquote radio track. Uh, they were looking to do something a lot along the lines of Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden. I think that from what I've read as well, they were kind of seeing Escape as an attempt to maybe pitch themselves to a major label. We've got this song that's ready for radio, etc. Uh, again, Metallica needing a record. <laughs> Metallica chasing a major record label. Can you fucking believe that? Um, mm. In terms of Escape, do you think it's a bad song? I don't think it's a bad song. I think it's a it's an average Metallica song. I just think I, th- I think it's a six point five out of ten song. It's okay. I do think the I do think the chorus is really cheesy. The, the chorus ain't great, man. <laughs> the, the chorus, chorus is really cheesy, and there's there's a there's um there's a nice guitar harmony moment, but 100 percent every single time that I listen to this album, apart from the three times I've listened to it for this podcast again, I skip a sky. Yeah. The only reason that I, the, and, and and that's partly because I don't really like it that much, but also because Creeping Death is next. Yeah. And it's really hard for me to just be like, why am I listening to this when I could be listening to Creeping Death? It's really difficult to prepare. I, like, I had to force myself to be like, no, no, you've got to listen to Escape because you've got to talk about it and use it in context of the album. But even I'm thinking like, but Creeping Death's next. <laughs> it's hard, it's hard. Like, I can't help myself. So that that's that's just the honest truth. And I'll be honest, I think if you played this album, Lars Ulrich, I think he'd skip Escape as well. And then you reach Creeping Death, Sam. Another yes. one of the greatest metal songs of all time. Fucking hell, mate. That that huge fucking soundscape intro. Dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. And then fucking, mate, Heffield. Oh, mate. So fucking brilliant. Um, 
that song is so so brilliant. Um, the way that Hetfield brings that riff back after he sings "I'm Creeping Death" to go back into the verse. Oh, fucking so good! And then on after the second chorus, so I think it's the second chorus. That's when you oh. It's fucking amazing. It it is. It's it's. I think it's the most complete song on the album, and by that I mean, if you it it, it it's the it's the song that summarizes Metallica's songwriting ability. And I've talked about Fight of Black in terms of like the the juxtaposition between the dark and light, but in terms of a thrash song, this is the most complete thrash song Metallica had written up to that point. And it is just a brilliant, brilliant song from start to finish. The way that these riffs are constructed together is incredible. The way that it transitions from the intro to the main riff to the verse riff to the sort of that pre-chorus riff where it builds up. The chorus is massive, absolutely humongous. And that midsection with the guitar solo, the and as well, that set another pattern where Kirk Hammett would write a guitar solo where he'd do the fast part and shred for sort of four to 12 bars. And then he would write like a, a singable melody um, as part of the guitar solo. And then it would kick into this secondary breakdown. The The complexity of the transitions here and, and the, the songwriting is just stunning. There are so many individual moving parts in Creeping Death. Like think how, how long this must have taken them to put this song together from intro to outro. And how many different riffs this would have taken, and the and the timing stuff, and then them, them to recreate this live—it's just superb. And also, um, there were points. There has been several several points where Metallica have opened with "Creeping Death," and oh god, yeah, um, they they did it quite regularly, like the 2010s, um, when they were just like headlining, download and stuff. It became like their like go-to. This will definitely work opening if we're not particularly. Like if they're not celebrating an album or like um, wrote anything new that they'll start with Creeping Death. And the sight of Metallica coming out of uh, Ecstasy of Gold, the crowd going mental, just that four count on the China symbol with this massive intro is just a wonderful moment for Metallica fans everywhere. And it's just a personal favorite of mine. And then on top of that, just the, the melody, the die, X, uh, the die bit is just brilliant live. Yeah. Brilliant live song. And that... The, on top of that, the, the complexity of Kirk Hammett's guitar riffs and, 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 and solos here. It is just a beautiful, 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 beautiful song and, and incredibly blended together. Such such a brilliant, brilliant, um, brilliant song. And one of the one of the great Metallica songs ever. Like they've been the fifth one already out of eight. It's extraordinary. I've said this before, man. When you're at Metallica live show and you know five of the last songs they will all be some of the all-time metal greats. One, Master of Puppets, Who in the Bell Tolls, this, Enter Sandman. Obviously, nothing else matters as an acoustic ballad, but that just speaks to the brilliance of this uh, of this band this and this song, that <laughs> you're like, it doesn't matter. It almost like, it's almost like null and void what Metallica do before they get to the last seven songs. Because you just know the last seven songs are going to be seven of the greatest written songs in metal history. And then whatever precedes that is just an absolute fucking bonus. And that's because 
Creeping Death is one of those. Not, mm-hmm. I, I mean, Matt, I, I can't really add anything more to what you said about it. It's this really, really fucking special, brilliant song, man. I, I, I absolutely love that chorus and that massive intro. Same sky, fucking amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. And then, mate, we finish up on Call of Cthulhu, which, you know, I'm not massive on the long instrumental, as we've discussed at Ad Nauseam before. Uh, and again, interesting that um, Dave Mustaine had writing credits on this. I do wonder what would have happened had whether this would have changed thematically or had Dave Mustaine st- stuck around for a bigger say. Um, how do you feel about this album? Ends? I like it. I really like it. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Proggy Metallica. <laughs> and I think um, I think this is where Proggy Metallica really come to the fore. I think this is, um, again, another example of their ambition, finishing on an instrumental rather than like a, a single or, any, or, or, or a big radio song or something like that. Shows how, how much they were willing to just experiment to do what they wanted. Um, I, I, think this is a, I think this is a brilliant song. I, I really, really do. I think this is really nice and complex and it really has this sort of cinematic feel. I love the introduction at the start. I love the clean um, the clean guitar, which, which I think is Mustaine's. That sounds really mustaine And I love the way that it finishes. That really concluding down, 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 sort of like massive chords at the end, sort of comp- um, compressing together and, 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 cres- and that big crescendo. And I think it gives the album a real feeling of cinematography and a real feeling of importance and grandeur and drama to the point where it almost allows the album to transcend the typical expectations of thrash. I love it because I'm a Metallica fan. I love it because I enjoy it as a piece of music, but I love it even more as an example of Metallica's brash and bold ambition and their signal of intent to do exactly what they wanted because this is a foreshadowing to Orion on Master of Puppets and the way that they are able to just construct these brilliant pieces of music without care for what the listener wants at all. Um, we think this is strong enough, strong enough piece of music that doesn't need lyrics. We're going to put this out there. Um, we're going to write ballads. We're going to write thrash songs. We're going to write instrumentals. We are, you know, we're a group that is, is going beyond thrash metal. And, and that's what this did. Um, Metallica pretty much created the blueprint of Thrash in 1983, and then by 1984, they'd already screwed up that blueprint and created another one in, in Ride the Lightning. And, Kirk, uh, and, and, and Call of Cthulhu is a, another example of their chameleon-like songwriting ability. What an incredible, incredible record. Uh, I feel like a lot of Ride the Lightning's greatness is rested into three of its songs. Pulling the Bell Tiles, Fade to Black, Creeping Death. But they're of, they are of such high quality that those three songs alone force this record to be considered as one of the greats. It's almost like the other five songs on this album could have just been audible noise. And, <laughs> and, and you would still have to consider this as one of the greatest metal albums of all time. That's the standard yeah. of For Whom the Bell Tiles to black and creeping death then when you consider the fact that fight fire with fire is a really rip roaring thrash song ride the lightning has so many brilliant lead passages that it's really difficult to pick apart trapped under ice is a good thrash song and then uh call of cthulhu is a really complex beautiful instrumental this album holy shit so so fucking brilliant although i, I do agree 
now, really listening to someone, really picking it apart, I do agree with you that it's very difficult to put this album above Master of Puppets when you go purely on a point-scoring contest. The only way I think you could put this album above Master of Puppets is if you were to say, well, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Fate to Black and Creeping Death are worth three points because they, they, do, yeah. this, they, they do this, this, this and this. And they ended up doing the, do, writing these songs, ended up doing this, this and this for metal. That's the only way I think Ride the Lightning uh, comes above Master Puppets. If it's pure point scoring, goal scoring, uh, you, you are correct, sir, uh, that it is Master Puppets. Mm-hmm. However, this in, unbelievable, unassailable, fantastic, incredible uh, thrash metal record. Completely agreed, completely agreed. And looking at the aftermath, of, of Riot the Lightning, what this band, what this band are able to do afterwards was they tore the shit out of this until 1985 and then immediately went home and started writing for stuff for Master of Puppets. But this, we were speaking of download earlier, this this was the album that got them on, Monsters of Rock, in 1985. And um, after this album came out, they then signed with Elektra and chose their new record label and Cliff Bernstein became one of the managers who's still a manager of Metallica to this day. So that was a good decision. And they then toured at Monsters of Rock. They had a massive tour. There's a great, there's a great moment where um, they play um, Monsters of Rock Festival in Castle Donington, and they come out and they're in between in 1985, in between Rat and Bon Jovi. Fucking hell! Um, which, in terms of the scheduling and the selection, I'm, I'm I'm glad that new people are probably working on the Download Festival right now because that is just some terrible organisation. And James Hetfield famously comes out and says, um, if anybody out there is expecting spandex, eye makeup and the words, oh baby, in every fucking song, this isn't the fucking band. And then they start. And that that this album combined with their brash attitude allowed them to move forward and push themselves to the point where they've become this all dominating force. And I think Metallica truly became Metallica during this period of time and started with this album that I agree with you on, on your original point about the point scoring thing. You could probably make an argument that the, the Metallica's high ceiling is on Ride the Lightning here with Fight to Black Creeping Death and For Whom the Bell Tolls. Because those three are three of their seven greatest songs without a shadow of a doubt. And to collect them all together at this young age is extraordinary. Really is arguably the greatest sophomore album of all time. It's between this and Toxicity for me. Which I'm gonna, which I'm gonna leave that to you, and you can have like a mental breakdown trying to decide which one yeah. I think is better. How could you um, do this? <laughs> but but it really is up there for one of the greatest second albums of all time, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, and obviously um, a top ten metal album ever. Dude, I'm wondering how we're gonna top these discussions, man, for another eight albums. <laughs> oh, don't you worry. I think we're good. I think we're good. Going to move on, Sam. Uh, we're going to fast forward th- 36 years <laughs> uh, and we're going to review... Back to the future, eh? Back to the future, indeed. Uh, new In Hearts White record, Sam Kali Yuga. I'm going to stick with it. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, it sounds released, good. It sounds good. It's released on the 7th of <laughs> August via UNFD Records. Uh, it's the band's fifth studio album. Before we start talking about um, the record itself, Sam, I uh, did want to mention, album is entirely carbon offset. Uh, and what yeah. I mean by that is the band measured up what the exact carbon, carbon footprint of the record would be. 
uh, which ended up being 26.37 tonnes of uh, CO2E. Scary, isn't it? That fucking 26.37 tonnes, every record that there's ever done. Jesus. Um, then the band purchased that amount of credits in the Yara Yara Biodiversity Corridor of Western Australia. Uh, the album's also been manufactured and packaged entirely plastic free. Uh, Sam, I think this is a ama- I think that is amazing. Yeah, I think this is such a wonderful thing to do. It really, really is. Um, do you not have any more information about what that what those credits actually mean? Like, oh, I does don't. that mean like, so is that like for what do you think? Is that like forest space or oh. like they plant trees or like do you know what I mean? How does it how is the offset happening? Like I think I think it's amazing. I'm just I'm genuinely curious about how that process works. Do you have any That's idea? that sounds like a question an intelligent person would know the answer to, Sam, and I'm not sure I fit the bill there. Uh, <laughs> it, gun to my head, I think they've purchased space to plant trees. I think that's what it means. The biodiversity okay. that corridor. Makes sense. Uh, um I think that's what it means. Or oh, purchasing credits in the Yara Yara biodiversity corridor. That sounds like it's in the building. Um, well, I, you can't plant trees in a building, Chris. That's <laughs> no, strange. no, that, you can't do that. Um, so <laughs> ma- maybe it's like I don't know, pledging into a fund for Yara Yara, so they can then go uh, and yeah. plant some trees somewhere. Oh, man. Um, like I said, I am nowhere near intelligent enough to know exactly what that means. However, I, I really appreciated your effort, though. That was wonderful. <laughs> Poor as it may have been, an album that was manufactured and packaged entirely plastic free and that they measured it like every single piece of electricity that would be used and all that kind of stuff. Mate, you hear bands write records about the environment and, you know, hey, we need to take care of Earth better. I've never seen a band go to these lengths. No. No, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary gesture to do that. And if it actually works, like if it's legitimately taken away any of their carbon footprint, then I would encourage every band to do this, obviously, because there are, part, there are parts of Australia where we, we absolutely need a bit more nature because half of it's been on fire for like a quarter of the year. So that would be wonderful. If we could start expanding that as well and taking back some of the coral reef that has just been eroded by nature and, 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 and our carbon footprint and stuff like that and really start clearing out some of the oceans and some of the landfill because of stuff like this. That would be wonderful. It really does point out as well that the big companies, the, 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 the big record labels and, and big corporations in general, I'm not just objectifying music, they really do have the power to change the world if they really wanted to. Yeah. And if it, 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 takes, it takes a few, if it takes a few more bands saying, no, no, we need to do this, then that's what should happen. Because clearly this is, this is where the impact can be felt. What I think as well is brilliant is that in Hearts Wake, they are not a multi-millionaire band. No. They, they, are, they are not on a million dollar record deal. They're not a band that have got excessive amounts of money. In Hearts Wake are a sizable modern metalcore band they played yes. they played third on the impericon never say die festival that i was at in november i think it was third they played third or second i can't i can't remember um they we saw them support while she sleeps in the outer in the outer asylum in birmingham which is one of the smaller venues in the city so you know in hearts wake aren't a band that have got a massive fucking bank balance 
but they've decided to do, they've decided to do this regardless. They are from Australia, so obviously those two things tying quite nicely together in the sense of obviously the terrible fires that have ravaged through Australia over the last few years, but obviously more specifically at the start of this year. So those two elements do tie together quite nicely. I think it's really amazing that a band that haven't got millions of dollars in the bank to use for this decided to do this anyway, uh, regardless of how me and you feel about the record, which we're going to get into in a moment. For a start, massive hats off to In Arts Wake for this. I've recently become a vegetarian uh, as, as part of my way of helping out the planet. Uh, and I, I draw really strong allegiance to this idea that they chose to completely carbon offset this record. Really amazing work. Yeah, absolutely. Really nice gesture. I mentioned size of the band, Sam. Uh, and mm. In Hearts Wake are, kind of like, are a band that I've always thought to be a good band. Me and you love their split EP they did with North Lane. Yeah. But I think it's fair to say, Sam, for me and you, we've kind of been waiting for a record of theirs which really takes them to another level. Uh, that's how I feel. How about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they've been a they've been a good, not great metalcore band for for a while, and it was high time for some experimentation, should we say? So as we get into Kali Yuga, I suppose it would make it uh, much like we do with Ride the Lightning if we just uh, take it chronologi- chronologically. Uh, mate, what a brutal! I'm going to start to the record. Um, you know, the heads on fire screens on Crisis. Obviously, yeah. you know, in case you weren't aware, like I mentioned, bands from Australia, um, they're big on climate change, etc. And then, mate, Worldwide Suicide is one of the hardest tracks I've heard all year. It's massive, isn't it? Fuck. It's absolutely massive. That is um, a beast of a track. It really, really is. And it's, it signifies that it, it seems to be written directly for the live performance. This seems like a song perfectly suited to big festival slots or sold out shows because the, there's a there's a sort of bouncy, heavy nastiness to it, but it also there's a real groove that would perfectly suit a big live show. I agree. I think this album starts tremendously. And then, so I, I, mate, I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking a completely carbon offset record that has started with its two tracks like this I'm thinking, mate, this could be one of the real great um, metalcore releases of recent memory. Were, were you were you on that vibe when you listened to the first two tracks? Oh, well, not necessarily metalcore, because I'd already began to notice a few changes in terms of the tone of the riffs and the style of the songs. Like, it was, it was heavy and massive, but I was like, okay, this is certainly a different sounding record to the ones that have preceded. Um, but yeah, I was I was still on board. The, I was thinking like, okay, this is like heavier let live at points. Like I was I was really invested. And then mate, Hellbringer turns up. Uh, really punchy, grinding guitar lines, mate. Jamie Hales from Polaris. What a fucking guest feature that is. Yeah, yeah he nails well. well. He nails this as well. He's the 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 chorus is per. It's it's almost like perfect Polaris. Like I've just pulled a Polaris chorus and put it in there because it's melodic, but it's really catchy. Um, there's a real nice melodic metal core sort of riffing juxtaposed with this massive chorus sort of going off. Um, did you notice the, the the David Drayman style scream at the start? Yeah. The rah, rah yeah. part. Um, I was like, <laughs> okay, that's that's an interesting touch. But it, it kind of suited the song's movement and the album's slow movement 
towards like a new metal type sound. Were you beginning to pick up on this vibe? Like there's a sort of new metal sort of bounciness to it, right? The what like it started to edge away from the metal course. Right, stuff. yeah. So if you put it a pin along. in that, yeah, so if you yeah, put, right. if you put a pin in that idea. Oh, I see what you're doing, I see what you're right. doing. Go on. Um so and for me, I, I don't think this record oh by the way, on Hellbringer, there's that couple of seconds of audio silence before the breakdown comes in. I'm yeah, fucking, that's a nice I'm, touch. About, I'm about it. Jake yeah. Taylor, uh, lead vocalist. I'm fucking about it. I'm about it, man. That's I really strict. like the, uh, the the final chorus when they're, they're they're combining the vocals. You know, they've got those backing vocals coming in over the top, yeah, and they're sort of like cascading off each other. I thought that was a nice touch. I thought that's that's ambitious. I'm I'm into that. That two second break before the breakdown comes in and Jake Taylor screams Hellbringer, fucking inject it into my, my fucking veins. <laughs> However, um. I don't think this album ever hits the consistent heights of like a great metalcore record, but I do think it's often very good. Um, there's a real slithering chorus on Time Bomb and Son of a Witch specifically, uh, and Carl Erich, who is uh, the backing vocalist. Um, it sounds a little bit different on this record. Uh, not, not massively different. Obviously, you can still take him, but I do feel like there, there is maybe some slight form of vocal effect on his voice, which mm-hmm. I think... I think in the right setting, does work for him. I don't know about you, I got big Danny Wars, not vibes from him at times on this record. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, sort of like pre, pre-recent albums of Asking Alexandria, where they were sort of doing um, that middle section between the, the death core stuff and what, what they do at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 the melodic sort of vocoder style. I was getting a lot of Prevail vibe as well. At times, like a, I understand a really, that. Yeah, yeah. A really big I Prevail vibe. And a little, a little bit, a little bit Sleeping With Sirens on the choruses. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, I mean, I can it see was, that. It was, it was starting to, and I don't mean that as an insult, I just meant that it was, sta- really? Um, <laughs> it was sta- <laughs> I promise. <laughs> but it was starting to match that blueprint at this point. Yeah. It was starting to edge away and going towards this slightly poppier, discourse yeah yeah so and this is where it starts taking a bit of a turn for me as well i really like i really like son of a witch i think it's it's a really good track and i do i I do like that song yeah and i I, i've never heard in hearts wake now choruses that are structured as differently as these and like the first six tracks of the records do do a a good job differentiating the styles from each other (laughs) and then and then uh, Crossroads turns up, which is like much more like a dark pop, uh, with vocals from uh, um, Georgia Flood, who I, I'm, I'm not familiar with, uh, and it kind of comes me. out. It kind of comes out of nowhere and feels like really, really jarring. Did you get that? Yeah. Did you think the opening riff sounded like a Don Brocco cover? A bit, yeah. Like, like, really, like, like, do, 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 Like, I was like, okay, I've heard this before. Yeah, I was. Um, I got a bit upset at that point. Uh, yeah. Um, I just wanna, I wanna take you through a couple of a couple of thoughts on um on on the on the, on the couple of songs, including sort of which and time bomb. I thought time bomb was really cheesy. Tick tick boom was was don't don't do that. Um, and son of, son of a witch kind of reminded me of Five Finger Death Punch. In the sense that it was like this spoken word rap metal thing for the verses, and then this big poppy chorus, and I was like, "That's following a certain trend." And there's a lyric that they repeat at the end of "Son of a Witch," uh, where it's 
you walk through fire, but you never learn. You went one step past the point of no return. And I just sort of repeat that. But it's, I didn't think it was poetic enough to really repeat that. It just felt a bit cliched. And then obviously we get to Crossroads um, where there's points when they're just exchanging cliches to each other, lyrically. Um, Star-crossed lovers on an empty stage. So it's just Shakespeare ripoffs of Romeo and Juliet then. That's cool. And and then it was like, I'm going to keep running and hiding. And then the other guy starts singing, running and hiding again. And it's like, <laughs> what is this? Um, it, it stopped being a metal album about two minutes into this and started feeling like they're describing romantic scenes from like a straight to a DVD movie that's just like not good at all. And it just felt like jarring is, is certainly the appropriate word for it because it just got steadily lighter where they were almost trying to ease you into this. And then this kicks in. It's like, this is really, really, really fucking odd. And you were talking about earlier that they're not a million dollar band, a million dollar contract. Maybe this is their attempt to be one of those. Maybe this is their attempt to really encapsulate or maybe, or maybe um, having a carbon offset album is really costly. And they, they want to sort of bring that back a little bit. I don't know what the, the methodology is there, but there is some odd moments on Crossroads and the couple of songs that lead up to it. I mean, for, I mean, for me, mate, it just Crossroads just doesn't work at all. Um, and yeah, you so know good. what? Roll, roll the dice, man. Bands need to do this. You got to fucking, you got to put your feet in to find out how cold the water is. I say that all the time. Water's fucking freezing on this one, though, mate. Let's be honest. In, in, in this case, mate, there is ice in them veins. <laughs> <laughs> this for me this doesn't work bro and then where i where i did pick up on the 2000s new metal is on husk yeah like, breaking benjamin off sort of yeah mate yeah. when that when that came in i was like oh, fucking hell man this 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 album has been stopped to a halt um and i really did start wondering at that point i thought right okay so they just put the best songs in this record early on then didn't they um and then the rest is just what whatever happened to be written after they already they knew, well, we're not going to write any songs better than these. We'll just fucking see what happens next. Um, yeah, like Fall Life and Iron Dice are not good. Yeah. Um, the, not, the, not the, good. the verses, are, Iron Dice in particular, like there's this like slow, boring, I'm sorry to call it that, but it is slow verse where they keep going to this like weird spoken word thing, which I think works at the right times, not as a regular feature where he's like semi rapping and stuff. This just doesn't work. And then the riff change kicks in. Um, Randy Ryman, I'm not familiar, but it changes the tone a little bit, but it still feels really repetitive. And then it finishes with dystopia, doesn't it? And it's just like, eh, it's just, it, it, it does get much, much worse and much more melodic and, and much less interesting as the album goes on. Yeah, I w once Husk came in again. I, I'm I'm not big on that on that track, and I th I thought right, okay, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure how this has happened, but this record is like <laughs> quite drastically changed course, and it started kind of sliding down a mountain, and then. Mm. You know, there's some decent centerpiece breakdowns in Force of Life and Iron Dice, but I feel like those tracks were just written that the wrote the breakdowns for those tracks that oh these these go hard, 
what can we do to just get to the point of the breakdown? We'll, we'll, quick, we'll quickly chuck something in that surrounds it so that, it's, so that we can actually use these breakdowns in the song. And yeah. instead yeah. of really creating a, like a full, like, streamlined track, it was kind of, you know, it felt to me like they'd wrote the breakdown first, this goes hard, what can we do for the verses? Not sure, we'll think of something. And yeah, it sounds like I'm being, sounds like I'm being a bit disparaging to the album. Which I, I, you know, I think I think this is actually a solid album. If if you but like point score it, like we were talking about Ride the Lightning, if you point score this, I think it's a solid metalcore record. But I, I do feel like it's very very heavily weighted in its in its first half. I, I feel yeah. like when, once you get after the halfway mark, this album starts uh, sliding quite quickly. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I would, I imagine that there's an audience that probably feels the opposite at some point as well. I don't, I, I don't think they're in our wheelhouse as such. But there is a market for this type of music, um, and it does exist. And there are people that go to gigs, and 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 it, it does, it does fit somewhere. Um, and it, and it is gonna, he's gonna probably boost their their sales a little bit, perhaps, but. I think they've abandoned a lot of the stuff that they were really good at by like track five and tried this style that they, re- that they really seem to be uncomfortable sounding um, throughout the, the second half of this album. And I think by the end of it, I actually think the bad outweighs the good by the end of it. Oh, you um, turned, th- you turned, had you? Yeah, I think I, I think I love tracks one to four, but tracks five to 11 or 12 are at best solid and at worst really kind of cringy and, and really, and really kind of embarrassing and stuff. And I didn't think that they needed that many like features. I didn't think that helps. And I also don't think that's necessarily a good sign um, either. If they feel that the, the record labels bringing in all these people to add extra tone to the album. Um, but I don't know. I just, I think, I think it was supposed to be there. I think this is supposed to be their radio hit. But they're, they're, this is supposed to be their album that they, they take on a different audience because it, it feels like a deliberate movement away from their sound. Like this isn't a metalcore album anymore. Um, it just feels like a weird transition. And it, as a result, the band, it feels confused throughout where the bands... Like my first time I heard this, I, I couldn't decide what the band actually were or what they were trying to do for a little bit. So I, I was like, well, first they're a metal album, first they're a metal band. And then the last five songs of this are like, pop rock and it just seemed really strange but then the more i listened to it the, the more i realized that the metal side of it was probably just the way to soften the blow of the poppier stuff happening later and it starts to feel less like in hearts wake or metalcore it starts to feel a little bit like bands like ice nine kills and i prevail and those type of bands that do have their own audience and do sell out shows and i'm sure they'll find some success um, but they've, they've they've certainly alienated a big part of their audience with this. I feel potentially, and 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 if you if you said to me, do you think In Heart's Way get dramatically bigger from this record? I, I would say I don't, I don't think so. I would like to see them. I always want to. I always want to see bands do well. I, I don't think this would be a game changer for In Heart's Way. I, I think that they almost deserve for it to be because of the efforts they've gone to to make this an environmentally friendly record. But based purely 
on what lies from when you press play on one end and stop on the other. Um, I, I'm not convinced this moves the needle for them massively. Although I do think I, I'm slightly more in favour of it than you. I think it's a full stop solid record, whereas by the same it for you, it starts good and then uh, slides quite quickly. Yeah, I feel that way. It, it begins it begins above average and ends um, somewhere below it um, by the end of it. I just found myself really disappointed um, by sort of track seven, eight, nine, and ten. I think I think songs like Crossroads and Tick Tick Boom are they were just empty calorie songs that didn't have any depth or impact in the way that they were intended. And for songs like that to work, the chorus has to be really special. And I just didn't think it was. And it's a shame because I think it's like, I think at the start of this, it sounded like they were going to go for a different direction, but they were going to go down like a, like I said, like a heavier, let live, bouncy, groovy, new metal with some, a couple of choruses here or there direction. And I was like, I'm well into this. Like, yeah, abandoned metal chorus, this is what you're going to go down because this could really work for you and this would be brilliant live. But then they went too far the other way by the end of it. That brings to an end episode 44 of the Noise Podcast. We are going to be back in a week's time. Sam, we're going to be reviewing the new album from Creeper. Yay. (laughs) And we're also going to be doing a breaking band feature. The news is going to be back and we'll be reviewing another album of which I choose for us. Thank you so much for sticking around. That was a big, long chat, but hopefully you enjoyed me and Sam going into full detail on Ride the Lightning. We are going to be back in a week's time. Remember, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, leave a like on the video, and tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back next Tuesday. We love you. Bye.